Hi there, I'm Jordan Bonaparte, and on my show, Nighttime, I seek out and explore Canada's most fascinating stories. Nighttime stories are told using intimate discussions with those affected. They left you there. That was the last time anyone ever saw her. Jailhouse interviews with those held responsible. The context of that meeting would be some kind of mass shooting. And any other way necessary to get you to the heart of the story. You can join me by subscribing to Nighttime wherever you get streaming audio. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Maura Murray was born on May 4, 1982, in Hanson, Massachusetts. By the age of 21, she was 5'7 and 120 pounds. On February 9, 2004, in Haverhill, New Hampshire, Maura Murray crashed her car on Route 112. There has never been a confirmed sighting of Maura since that night. If you have any information on the whereabouts of Maura Murray, please contact the New Hampshire State Police. This is the Missing Maura Murray Podcast. Welcome to the Missing Maura Murray Podcast. I'm Tim Polari, and I'm here with Lance Reinsterner. Hey, Tim. How's it going? Pretty good, Lance. Uh, this is the first episode of our Missing Maura Murray Podcast podcast and we decided to do a podcast why lance well maybe we should start talking a little bit about the uh the documentary that we were working on which has been about two years year and a half in the making um we knew that it was going to be a challenge and i guess we'll get to those challenges in the episodes uh coming up but we knew it was going to be a challenge it turned out to be um, a significant challenge and the podcast you really have a lot more control over what you want to say. Mm-hmm. And it seems like a good vehicle to at least get um, get the story out there in a different way and to get the, the feedback and the, uh, the information from people who wouldn't typically want to be on camera. So we're kind of branching out in, in a different medium in addition to a documentary that we're making in order to get uh, new and different fans, but also potentially people who are interested in contributing to the documentary. Correct. Correct. Yeah. People who, uh, like I said, typically wouldn't uh, want to have their face associated with something. Um, and as, as we'll, we'll find out as we move along, this is, uh, this is something that is really polarizing. Yeah. This is something that a lot of people love to talk about behind their keyboard and their computer screen. Uh, and once it comes down to um, actually putting their face to their opinions, for some reason, they lose the ability to... They don't want to lose their anonymity. Exactly. Exactly. And it makes sense. It's, it's a spooky story. There are some questionable characters involved, for sure, who may be listening at some point. Hopefully. 
Yeah. Yep. So uh, let's get into a, a sort of a surface level introductory episode here for this podcast. We're obviously going to get a lot deeper in future episodes. And, you know, I don't, we don't even know how many episodes there will be. And we'll have guests. We'll, we'll get as deep into this as we can. We're filming this to potentially use some of this in the documentary. So, Lance, let's, let's talk about what happened. Um, now, I, sort, of a, sort of a surface overview of the story um, of Maura Murray. And then we can go back and do it chronologically, tell the story. Sure. So starting right from, hey, you don't know who this person is. And you have uh, somehow found this name, Maura Murray, online. Uh, she is probably one of the first, or most, at least the most popular, uh, missing person to be uh, when you're searching missing missing persons. Uh, the the disappearance happened in 2004, and you have to think where the internet was in 2004. It was right at the birth of Facebook. Um, I think it was only a few months later. It was like during that time that Facebook mm-hmm. uh, started, but it wasn't uh, wasn't nearly to the point where it would end up. Um, so social media wasn't there. Uh, cell phones were 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 not um, as commonplace. Uh, as commonplace, as yeah. I mean, you weren't texting like crazy, and uh, you could really go and get yourself lost. Which is, uh, you know, some people think that's what she intended to do, but my point is that. If this is the first time that you are looking up her name, uh, you really have no idea what you're about to uh, get into when it comes down to the story. Uh, she was uh, in the beginning stages of this, of the disappearance, um, of trying to find her, of, of the information that was online about her. Uh, she was... Um, all that information was delivered in such a way where it made her look like she was the all-American girl. And then the more investigation and the more, um, you know, the armchair detectives started to look into this, it turned out that she was not only not the all-American girl, but she had her problems. Mm -hmm. Uh, Can I ask what you mean by armchair detectives? The people who do this on their spare time, uh, they, they, they tend to do all of their investigation... Uh, through the internet, uh, they are not professional detectives. They, it's something that starts as a hobby and gradually grows into something um, something more obsessive. Uh, and there's different levels of armchair detective. There's they're the ones that that sit back and kind of peripherally look at all the information and make their own uh, judgments. And then there are people uh, who we'll get to uh, later on that. Um, that do something about it, whether that's good or bad. I'm not, you know, given the opinion either way, but they do, um, they do, uh, you know, back up what they, what they, uh, what they write about or what they talk about. Is it safe to call us armchair detectives with a camera and a microphone? Yeah, I would say for a time, I, I know at least I was, mm-hmm. um, I'd say for a time, yeah, I was definitely an armchair detective, uh, and definitely one of the people that that didn't know what to do, other than it was a you know it was a really interesting story. And then there's another level of that that they go out and do it. Um, we've definitely teamed up with the more uh, uh, you know intense version of the armchair detective, mm-hmm. uh, which I guess indirectly that makes us you know on that level as well. Uh, 
you know, when it gets to the point where you start thinking, what if we find her? Or what if we solve this case? Then you, you've probably reached a level <laughs> that, that you didn't intend to... Yeah, it's it's almost, you know, yeah, it's almost a scary thought because, you know, this, like you said, this is a real person. This is, was a real, is a real family. Maybe she doesn't want to be found. Maybe we're ruining her life if we find her. Exactly. And if uh, we find her, find out she's deceased, we'd help to try to bring that person to justice who did something like that. But who knows if it was a murder or what? And that's something that you got to be careful about going back to um, if this is your first time you typed in missing persons, New Hampshire, and her name came up. And this is the first time that you're reading about this or listening to us talk about this. Uh, you have to be careful about things like Tim just said the word murder. There's, there's tons of information out there that's not accurate about this case. A lot of... Uh, a lot of people who talk about this case will say the murder of Moore Murray, the abduction of Moore Murray. There was no murder. There's no abduction. Well, we don't there's know. There's a disappearance. In, in fairness, we don't know. Yeah, all we know for fact is there was a disappearance. Right. And part of what the documentary was about was kind of sifting through all that and and shaking out what what's you know what's uh what's what's fact and what's made up in these you know the the armchair detectives can take one single word and just start manipulating it to the point where it gets piled on top of, and before you know it, you're reading about something online about this case, and it's not true. It's not true because someone used the word abduction mm-hmm. in some, um, um, you know, some blog uh, that they that they contribute to. What is the Topics blog? Mm-hmm. T O P I X. The Topics blog. Some people start start uh, writing about the abduction of Maura Murray, the abduction of Maura Murray. And then someone new comes in and they see the abduction of Maura Murray. And they're going on that information that she was abducted. So, so there's this whole saturation of of uh, of contributors who have, you know, maybe intentionally or not intentionally delivered false information. And maybe that's good for her. You know, maybe if she wanted to, to, to go away and, and not be found, all of that false information was good. Yeah. I and would she certainly so. picked the right time to go. It's right at the point where social media blew up. So Maura Murray was born on May 4th, 1982. She is from Hanson, Massachusetts. She disappeared on February 9th, 2004. She was 21 when she went missing. She's been missing for over 11 years and four months to this point. She's an American girl. She uh, is 5'7", 120 pounds, daughter of Frederick and Laurie Murray. And I think it's important to note that she was a long-distance track uh, state champion. Yeah, I believe she held some school records. So the night that she went missing, February 9th, 2004, she crashed her car on Route 112 in Haverhill, New Hampshire. How did that crash happen? The accident happened at 7.30 at night. Leading up to the accident, she sent an email to one of her professors at UMass Amherst saying that a family member had died. 
Uh, turns out that, of course, there was no death in the family. She packed up some stuff in her dorm room and just kept it in the box. So when uh, the uh, investigators searched her dorm room, they found items packed in a box. They weren't taken. They were packed up as if she was, you know, going on vacation. And going to retrieve the boxes later, or? I don't know. Huh. I don't know. Um, there was an email to her boyfriend, Billy Rausch, saying uh, that she loved him. We can get into that later, mm-hmm. um, but you can, uh, you know, the, the actual wording for the email, um, we can we can talk about later. Uh, she also called her boyfriend as she was driving, uh, left a message, um, and took money out of an ATM. I believe it was something along the lines of uh, $360. Um, All she had? Basically, yeah. Basically, it was... Uh, it left like enough money to keep the account open with two bucks or whatever. You know, it was, you know, she rounded it to the nearest, you know, $20. Yeah. yeah. Uh, went to a liquor store, purchased alcohol. I believe it was uh, Kahlua vodka, uh, Bailey's. So I remember when I first read about that, I thought it was uh, interesting that she purchased something that, in mass quantities, that is basically what. Um, you know, girls drink at uh, at a college party. You know, they're making like a mudslide or mudslides, mm-hmm. or they're making uh, white Russians. Mm-hmm. It just seemed like a college drink to me. And she purchased, um, um, as far as I know, purchased the uh, the larger containers of these uh, of, of the alcohol. She also purchased a box of wine, Frenzia wine. And then there is a gap in time, other than a ping off of a cell phone tower which may or may not be someone calling her or her calling somebody. Um, but it, it's a ping. We'll get into the ping later. As, 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 we, as we find out, there's going to be a lot of what we talk about right now that we're going to get back to. And we are just doing a surface on the whole thing. Her car ended up at 7.30 at night on uh, Route 112. The accident report was basically a car had spun out into a tree. Uh, when the officer arrived, uh, he found the vehicle parked facing west in the eastbound lane. So there's a couple of different theories on how her car got to that position. So if you're facing west in the eastbound lane, you've crossed over and your car is spun around, correct? Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's where her car was at. There was a, a witness. The vehicle was found facing west in the eastbound lane. Off of Route 112. Uh, it was locked. It was known in the area, and the police officer spoke to a witness. Now, this witness, his name is Butch Atwood. Uh, a lot of people suspected him for a period of time. We'll get to that. He's since passed away. Uh, and once you uh, Google his name and look him up, you'll probably see that he physically had no way to, to make all of this happen, kind of on a whim. Mm-hmm. Uh he had stopped. He saw the accident. Uh, he already came up upon the accident. He was a bus driver, so he came up upon the accident in his bus and stopped, and he spoke to the female, said that it was a young female behind the wheel. He said that there were no other people in the vehicle, and he said he spoke to the female who told him not to call the police. She had told him that she had already called AAA, which is interesting because the cell phone reception up there in 2004 um, it was awful. There was no cell phone reception up there in 2004, and the reason why I say that with such confidence is that there is no cell phone reception up there in 2015. Yeah, we were actually there. 
yeah, you go up there, you you drive by that area, and you'll you'll realize even in 2015, you can probably go and get yourself lost. Mm-hmm. If we're talking about the accident and the witnesses, there was a uh, a lady who lived in the vicinity. She looked out her kitchen window when the accident happened, and she saw the car in this uh, in this position after the accident. She has reported seeing a flurry of activity around the trunk of the car after the accident. At one point, this witness said that she saw somebody smoking a cigarette in the passenger seat of the car. Since then, she has sort of retracted that statement and saying it was perhaps a reflection of the taillight or it was a reflection of something off of her window in her house, or it could have been as Maura Murray told the bus driver Butch, it could have been her trying to call AAA. It could have been the, the, the red light on her phone trying to call AAA. What's interesting to me about that is this woman volunteered this information right away. When asked what happened, she was nearly certain that there was somebody in the passenger seat of the car and a flurry of activity was happening in and around the trunk area of the car. As with all of these types of cases, you have you have to think about it from the uh, from the police and investigators and arriving at the scene of the. Uh, and here's the thing: I almost use the word crime. At this point, if you put yourself back there, it's not a scene. It's not the scene of a crime. This is the scene of an accident. When they show up, the car's locked. Well, and there's nobody there. Right. Right it now, could be a crime. It could be a crime, but using that at this point, if we're talking about the night of. They're not thinking it's a crime at this point. Well, I'm actually talking about Mora because on this police report that I'm reading right now, it says that uh, that the officer noticed uh, the Franzia wine in the back seat. But he also says, I, and I quote, I could also see red liquid on the driver's side door and ceiling of the car. So one would assume that that was the Franzia wine that she that either, you know, broke open during the accident or maybe she was drinking it out of some kind of cup or... Absolutely. They actually found a, um, a Diet Coke bottle with a... Uh, it had a uh, very strong odor inside. So she was drinking and driving? Or no, the passenger no. was? Could be. That's the thing. If I, there was I mean, a passenger? If, I, if I'm putting, you know, my detective hat on and, and making, you know, the equation here... I would say that she <laughs> stopped at the liquor store, got the stuff to make drinks for whatever event was going to be happening that night, and then, hey, I'm going to grab some wine. As long as I'm in the car and I got the wine, I'm going to pour it into this Diet Coke bottle, and I'm going to you know, have a, couple of, have a couple of drinks while I'm driving to my destination. Yeah, so I, I think it's fair to assume that that's what she did. I think it's fair to make that assumption, okay. correct. Especially considering we, uh, you know, there's no evidence of another person in the car. At this point, there was no evidence of anyone else in the car other than the witness saying that she was relatively sure that someone was smoking a cigarette inside the car Okay. when there was a flurry of activity in the trunk. Settle in for an evening of mystery, mayhem, and exploration of the dark side of humanity. I'm Dr. Shiloh, a former cop. And I'm Dr. Scott a former Hollywood casting director. Now we're both forensic psychologists working in Southern California. Are you fascinated by the twisted minds that commit criminal acts? 
Do you ever wonder, how could they do that? In each episode of our podcast, LA Not So Confidential, we dissect the nexus where true crime, forensic psychology, and entertainment meet. Jeannie Blanchard was exaggerating her daughter's medical condition for financial gain. We serve up fascinating cases viewed through the lens of human behavior. Brother, why is your brother afraid of you? Delivered with our signature gallows humor while examining the actual diagnoses and dishing on the media portrayal. The kids are my life. Subscribe to LA Not So Confidential anywhere you go for podcasts. Come and join us for LA Not So Confidential. Trust us, we're doctors. Rex Sherman is a demon that walks among us, a predator that ruined families. The Lisk Long Island Serial Killer podcast was shocked when the news broke of Rex Hewerman's arrest. After more than a decade of searching, law enforcement officials had finally pieced together enough evidence to bring formal charges against Rex Hewerman. Initially charged with three murders, Hewerman is now officially charged with all four deaths in the Gilgo 4 case. I'm your host, Chris Moss, and the Lisk podcast will be releasing new episodes with interviews and fresh insight on the case as Rex Hewerman awaits trial in Long Island. While we are relieved by the arrest, the List podcast team will be working hard to share new developments and perspectives as we get them. So please keep your eyes and ears out for new episodes, and if you haven't already, please listen to seasons one and two of Lisk, Long Island Serial Killer, wherever you listen to podcasts. Do you want to know what it's like to hang out with MS-13 in El Salvador? How the Russian mafia fought battles all over Brooklyn in the 1990s? Or what about that time I got lost in the Burmese jungle hunting the world's biggest meth lab? Or why the Japanese Yakuza have all those crazy dragon tattoos. I'm Sean Williams. And I'm Danny Gold. And we're the host of the Underworld Podcast. We're journalists that have traveled all over, reporting on dangerous people and places. And every week, we'll be bringing you a new story about organized crime from all over the world. We know this stuff because we've been there. We've seen it. And we've got the near misses and embarrassing tales to go with it. We'll mix in reporting with our own experiences in the field. And we'll throw in some bad jokes while we're at it. The Underworld Podcast explores the criminal underworlds that affect all of our lives, whether we know it or not. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Hey listeners, it's Tim and Lance here, and we wanted to remind you that we have a little show out there called Crawl Space. On Crawl Space, we dive deep into a number of cold cases, not just one-offs, but for as many episodes as we need to raise awareness and tell stories of people impacted by crime. And we are constantly striving to inform our listeners about topics and events that they may not realize have an effect on their lives. Experts, authors, survivors, and educators in the fields of psychology, criminology, advocacy, history, and more join us as we work together to understand our community. We like to say Crawl Space is the place where crime meets culture. You can find Crawl Space wherever you listen to your podcasts. Getting back to your point, though, about, you know, yeah, at this point, I'm sure the uh, officer at the scene is thinking yeah, this girl or this person crashed the car after drinking and she's run off into the woods. And, you know, a realistic assumption, I would have to say. Absolutely. And a 21-year-old girl is about to get a DUI. Uh, you know, that's not something that anyone wants on their record, especially someone who's in nursing school. And again, we'll get, yeah, we'll get to these, uh, you know, we'll get to these points um in, in later episodes, but this was a girl at this particular time in her life where a DUI probably wasn't the, wasn't the best thing for her. She had been in trouble 
on a couple of other occasions for different uh, different infractions, uh, not only at UMass, but at West Point. So being convicted of a DUI could have potentially gotten her thrown out of school. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Or in very deep trouble, not only at school, but with her uh, her father. I think it's important to reiterate that it was February in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. So I think it, it must have been 30 degrees or, or colder there. The snow on the ground, it's got to be below freezing, right? From what I've read with the weather reports and um, witness accounts, it had snowed uh, uh, earlier on in the, uh, you know, in the season. Um, so there was a, uh, you know, a substantial amount of snow, a normal amount of snow, I would say, on the ground for that area. But that particular night, um, it, the, the temperature was, was mild for that time of the year. Um, you know, I'd say like high 30s, mid 30s for that time of the year, which is, you know, it's mild, kind of normalish mild. Um, Normalish mile for this area. However, if yeah. you're listening in a tropical area like San Diego or somewhere like that, um, this is cold as hell. Yeah, and and also I, it's Fahrenheit for our international listeners, so it would be around zero Celsius. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Which is uh, you know you can start putting some stuff together on that if she planned on running at that, uh, you know, stage in the accident and, and, and taken off and she was going on foot. Yeah. I mean, this is a girl who, who ran, she, she was a runner in school. She was driven to do physical activity, a lot of cardio with her father, uh, mountain climbing, hiking, uh, cross country running, you know, someone like that can, uh, can warm up real quick with the, you know, put the, uh, put the, um, you know, the Under Armour on and, and go and warm up and, and she could probably go you know, six, seven miles in, in weather like that mm-hmm. if she just started running. So where are we at here? We're at the vehicle. The vehicle has been found by the police. Uh, we uh, are talking about whether or not this was a crime, whether it was staged, uh, what crime was committed. Um, and we do know that she was seen, spoken to by at least one person who was in the car uh, following her, um, Butch Atwood came up on the accident moments after it happened. Uh, she, she, He's a bus driver? He, he, he was a bus driver. That was what he did for his living. And he pulled up to her in his bus. Let's say that the accident happens and she's in the car and she realizes, you know, she's getting, uh, like, she's collecting her thoughts. She gets out of the car. And he comes up to the scene. So we're going to say maybe that's probably a minute and a half. Right. After the accident. I would say probably around that time. Okay. And then we're making that sort of assumption because the witness called right when she heard the the sound, right? Did she call before Butch Atwood showed up? Or that's unclear? The witness who lived in the house made the phone call to the police... After Butch had spoken to Mora. Okay. Side note on Butch speaking to Mora, when Butch uh, first saw uh, the photograph of Mora Murray, he said, no, that's not the girl that I spoke to. Hmm. And the first time I heard that, I was like, oh, that's got a little chill there. Yeah. Um, and then later on, he was uh, studying the picture more and um, said, uh, yeah, that's, that's probably the girl. Cause you know, when I saw her, she was, uh, she was kind of out of it. She, you know, had been in an accident. She was kind of, um, you know, she's kind of, you know, a little bit of a wreck. So mm-hmm. 
she he could have seen this picture of her, you know, the class picture of her, and then the, what he actually saw, you know, looked a lot different. And yeah, she may have been even a little uh, intoxicated at that point. She could have been, yeah, yeah. Um, another side note on the uh, on the drinking of the wine. Every, a lot of people have made uh, some some issue about whether or not she was drunk at the time. Um, I'm telling you, if you when you drive those roads up there, if it's night and you're you're not in a very good car, which she wasn't, um, I don't, I you know, whether or not you've had something to drink, you can spin off the road there Absolutely. if you're not paying attention. Absolutely. Again, um, this is going through the mountains. Yeah, this is going through the mountains. This is this is a corner that. You know, if if navigated well, you're fine. But uh, I've driven up through there in the day during the summer with clear roads. And if you're if you're distracted, if something happens, and you're you know, you can you can miscalculate that corner. Mm-hmm. You can hit the snowbank. The snowbank can pull your car. You can spin around and hit a tree. Certainly, yeah. if you're maybe on the phone or trying to make a call or even a text, yeah, that would potentially happen easier. Yeah. Yep, and then you know, put on top of the fact that she probably had you know at least a, a twelve ounce diet coke bottle full of wine, you know, at that point consumed um, for one hundred and twenty pound, uh, you know, twenty one year old sure, girl. That's sure. probably enough to get her buzzed. Sure, she wasn't uh, unfamiliar with drinking though. Mm-hmm. She definitely uh, had her had her moments in college. One of the uh, things that um, I have yet to find a definite answer on is whether or not the alcohol she bought was in the car when the police found the car. When the police impounded the car, there have been numerous accounts of the alcohol bottles still being in the car. Some people say that the police confiscated them, and some people say that uh, that they weren't in there, or not all of them are in there. And there has uh, there has yet to be a definitive answer, unless I'm missing something, of whether or not that alcohol was found in the car. Well, it is not on the police report on the on the accident report, the is, initial accident. Exactly, report. and with this case, I've always thought that going back to as close to the accounts when they happened as possible is is the best thing to do. That's what you got to do. That's that's what the the problem with these uh, these armchair detectives is is that they say one one wrong thing. They say something like, you know, if they think the alcohol was found in the car and they put it out there in their blog and people read it, then all of a sudden the alcohol was found in the car. This report was written six days after the accident, so it is possible uh, that officers may have forgotten what they found. Um, However, they probably just didn't confiscate it and drink it, like bring it home and leave it from the report. It probably wasn't there. Unless for some reason they thought it might have been evidence in some way that they shouldn't release. Mm -hmm. Oh, I also think it's what you're saying about these facts getting getting misconstrued. I think it's sort of like a game of telephone almost in in like a if say class, preschool, Absolutely. first grade, you know, yep. grade school, you say, you know, John is going to the park on Saturday to the person next to you. That person tells the person next to them. By the time it comes all the way back to you, it it is Tom went to the park last Friday. Yeah. yeah. So uh, it is very important to look at these police reports and the official language, I think. 
uh, just to know what we're actually dealing with. And so that you know when someone is trying to bend the narrative to fit their theory. Which happens often. Which happens all the time. And you have people who bend the narrative to fit their theory, and then you have people who invent a narrative. And we'll, we'll get to the people who are inventing a narrative and using this as a springboard for their own, what would you say, their own publicity. But it's it's kind of weird because it's not even like publicity. It's to get off on it. It's to get off on freaking people out over this. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a there's a there's a large faction of people who do that and who manipulate the uh, the internet in a way to put their moniker out there and they've made a character out of themselves mm-hmm. based on this case. When the police showed up, they they took down some notes. They did not find Mora. No, they filled out the accident report, which. Uh, you know, it was very straightforward. It's mm-hmm. uh, something where the guy probably, um, you know, he sat in his car after and, and, and circled the proper things where the, you know, what type of accident it was, um, where uh, the the uh, the car, like what the car struck, um, location of uh, where it happened, whether it was, um, you know, at an intersection or red light or at a, um, you know, off-road, uh, off the shoulder, which this, this is what it happened to be. Um and uh, yeah, he probably sat in his his. Uh, and again, I'm just kind of assuming what happened. He probably sat in his uh, police car, as um, as the the you know other members of the uh, you know the other authorities authorities would showed up. Do. Yeah, um, and and he you know I'm guessing he filled this out when it was still fresh in his mind. Mm-hmm. Um, However, the report wasn't turned in until six days later, or at least finalized. Yeah, and I don't know if that's something that's normal. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if this is uh, February 9th, they have, you know, they don't realize that they're not finding her within the woods that night. Well, let's get into that. So what, what did the police do next? After he, you know, took his notes and maybe started the initial report, when did they start looking for her? They towed the car. They are still assuming that this girl is probably hiding in the woods. This is something that's not uncommon. You know, someone someone knows that they're drinking and driving, they get into the accident, and then they, they leave, uh, figure it's better to, you know, ask forgiveness after the fact. Uh, you know, I'm sure they get that a lot. I'm, this happens all the time. In fact, I had a friend who did this exact same thing and uh, hid in the woods yeah. to avoid the DUI. Yeah, and then you then you just figure it out later on. You mm-hmm. go get your car, you figure it out later on. You say, you know, you could say, I don't know, I must have had a seizure. You know, mm-hmm. like you can make something Or someone else. stole my car. Yeah, someone stole my car. So this isn't like instant missing person in their head. As far as finding Mora, what did the police do after the accident? Well, at that time, they probably aren't thinking that this is a, a missing person. They have the car impounded. Um, Lavoie's towing service uh, in the area comes up, tows the car, uh, and it's like a um, uh, you know a side of the road type uh, auto shop. Um, you can pretty much like you know see it from the side of the road. You, it goes into the into the garage, and they lock it up. Okay. Lance, in looking at these pictures of the car, and actually you and I have video footage of this car as well. We uh, we were up there and we filmed the car in its current state after the accident hasn't been driven since. 
um, just I, I don't know if it's important to note the damage, but there is um, driver's side front end damage. Sort of the headlight seems to be smashed. The, the hood is pushed up a little bit. And the windshield is was cracked and sort of spidered in one, definitely was hit in one specific area. And if you were to assume it was the driver's head hitting the windshield, uh, it's it's basically the top of the windshield, so... Yeah, the driver's head would have to be launched, like, up and forward. So maybe she wasn't wearing a seatbelt? I mean, I know that's not... There was no... It's not important to assume that, but I'm just saying that the, the crack seems tall. You know, she, this the, girl's 5'7". I'm not trying to to make the case that someone 6'3 was driving the car. I'm just saying, looking at the damage, it almost seems like someone taller would have been driving the car. Or she wasn't wearing a seatbelt and, and got jolted forward. Facts on this is that the cracks were from the inside out. And happened during the accident. Well, actually, we don't know that. We don't know that, time. yeah. Okay. Yes, there was damage to the front of the car, driver's, driver's side, uh, above the headlight. Um, almost looks like someone uh, took like a big baseball bat, maybe took a swing at it. Um, and there was uh, the, the hood was pushed up. Interesting to note, when we visited this car, uh, it had been... Um, sitting in the same spot at the state police troop F barracks in New Hampshire, uh, in the white mountains, um, for 10 years and had been sitting there and it's, uh, just out in the open. And the, there was a part of the car that was missing when we went to look and it's sort of an important part. It is. And, uh, and what part is that? The part that was missing, um, first of all, we could only get within 10 feet of the uh, of the car, but our camera had a zoom on it, so uh, the camera got closer than 10 feet. Um, it was the exhaust system. The entire exhaust system had been removed. The muffler. Exactly. The muffler and tailpipe. Why do you believe that was removed? Well, um, when our car was found, it was towed, as I uh, mentioned before. Uh, it was impounded. Fred... Murray had requested to see the car, uh, but it was under um, lock and key when it was uh, in the days following Mora's disappearance. And he had volunteered the information to the police that, hey, if you guys find a rag in the tailpipe, it's because I told my daughter to put it there. Her car wasn't running well. And he told her to put it there as a way from keeping the car, uh, like, sputtering. From sputtering? Yeah, from stalling. That's sort of an old-school style of auto mechanic? I have no idea. I would never tell my daughter to put a rag in her tailpipe. Um, And the rag was found in the tailpipe. And why it was in there has been probably one of the biggest mysteries of this whole thing it's safe to assume that the authorities removed the exhaust system why would they have done that taken out the exhaust and the muffler yeah i mean not only is it safe to assume it's a fact they took out the the muffler they took out the tailpipe once the car was impounded the night of the accident in the days following that fred murray mora's father had uh, requested to see the car. It was under lock and key. He was un- unable to see the car because it was a uh, it was part of uh, the missing person case at this time. And he volunteered the information to the local authorities, saying, "If you find a rag in the tailpipe, 
uh, I told her to put it there. The car wasn't running well, and I told her to put it there as a way to keep it from sputtering, maybe. Uh, he said he told his daughter to put a rag in the tailpipe to make the car run better. And they found a rag in the tailpipe. And that has been one of the biggest mysteries when you're first getting involved in this case and you read that. There's no reason for it. I know there was some thought that maybe Mora had this rag in the cab of the car, wiped, would tried to wipe up the wine and put it in there herself. That's a theory. Okay. It's never been, um, it's never been uh, released what the rag was or if the rag contained anything or, you know, other than fingerprints. Um, and then fingerprints, I don't believe, I don't think that that's ever been released, whose fingerprints were on the rag. All that has been um, publicly stated was that Fred had said, without being asked, if there's a rag in the tailpipe, I told my daughter to put it in there because the car wasn't running well. And if she experienced problems with the car, hey, put a rag in the tailpipe. Personally, I would never say that to my daughter because I've, you know, seen Beverly Hills Cop. Yeah, you put something in the tailpipe, you know, it, it, whether or not that's a old wives' tale or, you know. Well, I, look, exhaust has to go somewhere, right? You, a car can't run without exhausting. Exactly. Same thing with the dryer, yeah. same thing with uh, any automobile with an engine. Yeah. It's just, it's it's it was a silly thing to to read and think that, you know, this, this man who's in his, like, in his fifties been around the block, you know, like you're telling your daughter to put a rag in the tailpipe. Um, and they find a rag in the tailpipe. And this is not necessarily the only thing that Fred Marie Mora's dad, uh, did or has done that is, uh, considered questionable or maybe shady, but I don't want to sit here and and call foul on him. There are a number of shady characters involved in this story that we will divulge as the podcast unfolds. Thank you very much for listening to this Missing Maura Murray podcast. We will be back with episode two soon. As we said in the beginning, this first episode was just kind of an overview of what happened. It's really easy to get distracted and kind of go off on a, on a tangent about a fact or a, a perceived fact. Um, so hopefully we did our best uh, to not convolute the first episode. Uh, and in the episodes following, we're going to be very specific about um, what we talk about and try to keep on track. But um, the more you listen, the more you realize that there's a lot of, a lot of stuff that uh, goes into every single account, every single um, police report, every single phone record. Uh, nothing is black and white here. Nothing's cut and dry. There's a story behind everything, and there's a, uh, a little mystery behind every little fact in this. And this night in early February 2004 was the last time she was seen in a public manner. Absolutely right. Other than unconfirmed sightings in the, in the weeks, in the months, and as we get into this, you'll see in the years following... February 9th at about 7.35 p.m. was the last time that anyone saw Maura Murray.
When a person goes missing, their loved ones often find themselves overcome with worry and grief. Bruce Maitland started the 501c3 nonprofit organization Private Investigations for the Missing because he knows this feeling all too well. When Bruce's daughter Brianna disappeared in March 2004, he was surrounded by licensed private investigators dedicated to finding her. Now his mission is to provide dedicated private investigators at no cost to other families of the missing, desperate for answers but without the financial means. Private Investigations for the Missing needs your help. To read the mission statement, make a donation, and keep up with our blog, visit us at investigationsforthemissing.org and follow us at PI for the Missing on Twitter and Facebook and Investigations for the Missing on Instagram. Because forever is too long to wait. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.